Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Corey House, who is a software engineer, speaker, instructor, and principal at ReactJS Consulting. Corey joins us from sunny Kansas City in the United States. Corey House, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, I, I love the old saying that we write software for humans, so I think about that regularly. When it really comes down to it, I think it's thinking more about my fellow developers than about the compiler on a regular basis. And I would say uh, the book that really hammered this home for me very early was Code Complete by Steve McConnell. I read that early in my career, and it's one of the, it's probably the thickest book I've ever read. It read so quickly, though, because it was just I kept going, oh, there's a name for that. Like, I figured that out on my own through pain, but somebody else has also come to this conclusion. It just opened my eyes to so many patterns that once I heard someone else say it, I thought, oh, well, it's obvious. I, I love, I, I found too, like once there's a name for a concept, it's easier for me to reference later. It's part of why things like design patterns are so useful because I can encapsulate this idea in a single phrase. Another thing that has given me a lot of empathy in this area is the fact that as a consultant, I spend a lot of time doing code reviews. And in fact, for some of my clients, that is the vast majority of my time because it's one of the greatest ways for me to try to lift all boats. If you've got a team of more junior developers, if you're early in a project and you're wanting to set some standards, then that's a great place to do so. Now, pairing is another great place, but as someone who reads code for a living, I think very much about variable names and decomposition and conveying intent as much as I can. I think about the beauty of things like temporary variables or things like if I'm writing a regex, that old saying of a regex is write once, read never. Well, that's not necessarily true. Like if I'm going to take a regex, then I love to see a regex that's actually wrapped in a function and then that function has a unit test. So then I can see, okay, here's 10 different inputs to this regex and here's the expected output. So now it's no longer unreadable. It's actually well-documented and I can clearly tinker with it too if I ever wanted to refactor it in some way. So finding the ways to be able to convey more signal to our fellow developers is just something that resonates with me. It's interesting that you brought up the the regex example. That historically has been one of my favorite ways to start introducing like junior developers or interns to testing. Like a recent example was pairing with someone over like Jira ticket numbering, like where we've got a project code and numbers. I'm like, let's throw a bunch of different like inputs at this and like it should like return like gets the ticket number. We like try to then associate to different projects that way. But it was like, this felt like a really good way to like come up, as you said, like come up with like 10 different examples of like what we might feed into it and when it kind of deviates from it. And then they'd be like, this is a good example when you could use a test as an, you know, one area be like, let's feel like we have a lot more confidence. So if you want to make changes to the regex to incorporate some new sort of format in the future, then we can know that we're not breaking the way things that used to work. So I've always thought that was a kind of like a good way to like introduce people to testing because regex can seem a little scary at times. And so... You know, you also mentioned temporary variable naming. Do you actually have strong opinions on that? 
Well, when you say strong opinions, one thing that I think about is anytime that I'm going to put a comment above a line of code, I ask whether I could convey that intent in the code itself. And a temporary variable is a perfect example of that. I could say I could improve that temporary variable's name or introduce a temporary variable if there isn't one. A good example of this is you've got a conditional and the conditional has one simple check in it and it's readable, but over time you might end up with two, three, four, five, six different compound and this and this or this, and it starts to need some kind of an English name that conveys your intent. And a temporary variable does exactly that. So it's not a hard, fast rule. Uh, I'm, I don't think that there's anything wrong with, um, for instance, chaining together a, a map and a filter, for instance, in JavaScript. Uh, it's not like I need to have temporary variables for each one of those. Uh, I think, you know, use your best judgment there because you sort of put yourself in the shoes of someone else reading the code later and ask, would this be confusing to someone later? Would it be hard to parse? Would they find this particular line to be a little too dense? You know, I work in the world of Ruby and, you know, we try to embrace to make things as English readable as possible. Supposed to be very, you can be verbose and we're trying to like offset how often you said, can the code convey the intent here without necessarily needing to write like some comments right above it? Not that there isn't a good case for when you should have code comments and such, but can you convey what's what's going on here, and can someone kind of read this, kind of in, interpret what's happening? And I've sometimes, you know, it's like during like a pull request process or something. If you're reviewing some code, do you get nitpicky on your end around like, well, if you're like in a block of something and someone uses like a single letter variable or something and like a, a couple of lines of code there because you can kind of it's kind of focused in that like or like if you're iterating over something and then do you have that kind of concern or do you like to make sure that you're still kind of conveying what the heck the thing is that you're iterating over. Well, I think that's a good point around context because I like the model that the shorter that the variable's lifetime is, the shorter the name can be. So for example, when I'm using a map call and an anonymous function, it is implied that the variable name that I choose there represents the single element that I'm iterating over. So if I'm mapping over, say, a user using the letter U there in the map call, to me is intuitive and readable. Now, I will say I generally go ahead and put user there rather than the letter U, merely because, again, I figure... For some other people, it is a little bit easier to see at a glance. The user is what we're talking about. They don't have to go look to the left and see what it is referencing. So a few extra characters isn't a big deal there. And I don't feel really strongly one way or the other. I, one thing I have definitely learned in code reviews is if there's something that's coming up for me more than once or twice, I start looking for a way for us to automate that check. And we should also talk as a group to say, how do we feel about these standards? And that's the wonderful thing about automating as much as you can here is uh, everybody's heard the old uh, complaint about, okay, there's somebody on my team who's so nitpicky and they take forever on my pull requests. And it's all these little tiny things that don't necessarily matter that much, but they care about them. So if we automate most of those checks, it's really nice if the code review is about things like, I see a missing test, I see a bug. I see a missed requirement, the sort of things that are 
objectively a problem rather than subjectively some kind of an opportunity for improvement. So like, like you say, for example, in, in the JavaScript space, I'm, I love that we have prettier, prettier auto formats or code. And that took a whole set of conversations where people would say, well, could you change your tab indentations here? Or I feel like this line is a little too long and those sorts of just completely went away. It's, it's totally off my radar and my pull requests get reviewed more quickly and I can jump between projects more quickly because of those sorts of standards. So I think it's wonderful that we're moving more and more in the direction of, of automating everything that can be automated. I think that that's, that's a good uh, good point there to think about the concern on a team needing to be nitpicky or not about like, well, what you name this weird or you're not following the conventions that the team aligned with and you have to remember all those conventions because not a, I can't remember every single style guide rule that my team has like agreed on in the past. I'm like, oh, you know, unless something is you know, checking it, like having linters and things like that. And that can catch that and then, you know, give you that feedback and not have to then waste your time, I think, as a team discussing that stuff when it's something you've already agreed upon. You're like, oh, they can figure that out. They can fix it themselves or they can work on it. And in the weird edge case where they actually need to do something that kind of breaks it for some reason, then you can like, you know, they can figure out how to like override the, the rules in that particular scenario for some whatever weird edge case thing that might be. And then you can focus on these, as you're saying, these on the the important things where you can have these like contextual conversations about, like, hey, there's tests missing. And that's something I wanted to talk with you a little bit about, because I know that, you know, given that you, from what I know, you work more on the front end side of things, and I kind of typically work more on like say, the more server side level side of things. Curious to hear about your take on things regarding like automated testing and like sort of tooling that you kind of advocate and are able to bring into those teams. And like, how do you think about those things? Do you have some high level things you're typically going in with your clients and advocating for? Yeah, I have a few in that front. I mean, for one thing, I'm a React specialist. When React was open source years ago, I went deep on that. So my whole consultancy is, you know, named after that very focus. The thing that's interesting, though, is companies start out there and it's sort of the Trojan horse that gets me in the door. And I end up doing all sorts of different things that are at the periphery that uh, often even move outside the realm of front end altogether and doing DevOps and uh, back end work as well. So it's just the nature of consulting. Uh, I like to say that the the gift for good work is more work. So here you go. That's what I found. But I mean, on the front with the, the question that you asked, uh, my favorite tools on the front end space are Cypress and Playwright when it comes to automating the browser. Both of those are excellent tools. I use Cypress for many, many years. Playwright, I had tried about a year ago and I... In short, I felt like, okay, this looks promising, but it wasn't ready. The docs weren't quite there. The user experience was a little bit, it felt a little bit raw in places. I decided to wait. And then I picked it up again after that whole rule. I don't know if you ever heard this before, but like if two or three people tell me the same thing, now my ears finally perk up. The first time I more or less ignore things, but when I hear things repeated, then I start going, okay, I'm seeing a trend. I really do need to go back and look at this. And Playwright hit that, like multiple people that I knew were singing its praises. And I said, okay, maybe it's it's gotten better. And sure enough, it did. Uh, so I've actually pivoted over to using Playwright heavily now. Uh, and I really enjoy it. I still am a big fan of Cypress too. I think you can't really go wrong with either. If I were to differentiate, I would say Playwright tends to be faster because it parallelizes so well. It also does a really nice job on cross-browser testing. I love that it uses multiple cores locally. Uh, I also like that it has testing library style queries built in. So basically it encourages me to write accessible HTML, which I think is wonderful too. So a lot of my clients though, I come in and they 
they have that common problem of saying, we know that we should test, we know that it's important, but we feel like we're too rushed. Or the other one is we feel like we're not really sure how to do it well. And I totally, both of those things resonate with me because frankly, for a lot of my career, probably the first 10 years of my career, that was the way I felt. Now it's, it's just part of what I do. It's part of my workflow and it's, it's wonderful. Like it's an easy decision for me to write tests. And I think part of that too, is just the tooling has gotten so good. So the ability to automate the browser as a front end developer is not just about testing. It's also about coding more quickly because I no longer repeatedly click around and fill out forms. I run a test that does that for me. So I just get this instant feedback of, I add another feature, I watch the browser do its thing, and then I proceed. So it's a, it's a really quick feedback loop that way. The other thing that I use a lot is uh, for unit testing, I use either Jest or Vite Test. Both of those are great options. Uh, and then I use testing library along with those because I'm a big believer in having test locators or some would use the term selectors or queries. All of those are sort of the same idea. It's this idea of how do I get a reference to a particular element on the page? And my answer to that is ideally it should be the same way that a user would. So I should be looking for labels. I should be looking for headers and form inputs by their label, for instance. So those are my, my favorites. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? We'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Do you often do much like when you're working on like helping, helping people you know, introducing more tests or become more comfortable? Do you do much when around like bug fixing and being able to reproduce it through something like Cypress as a way to kind of help show them like, hey, look, we're able to reproduce the issue. We're seeing it pop up now that we have a failing test now in our in Cypress or something like that? Absolutely. And for that matter, having that muscle memory of saying, we know that there's a bug and that means the first thing that I should do is write a test to reproduce it. I've been doing this for years and I will say like, that's very easy for me to say, but it's actually still hard to do because the moment somebody says that they have a bug, my natural tendency is to go into the code and try to find the bug. When I have to say, look, I've, I've heard people say it and I've said it to other people. I have to step back and say, let me write the test that reproduces the bug. And once I do that, it's satisfying too, because I get to watch that test turn green and now I have confidence that I fixed it. And I also have confidence that it won't regress later. The other benefit is if I write the test after, then I actually don't know for sure that I've fixed it. I need to go revert my change, watch the test fail, and then put my test back in. So, and I don't want to make it sound like I, uh, 
necessarily think that one has to do test-driven development. In other words, test-first development. I frankly do it sometimes and don't other times. The important thing is that we write sufficient tests, and I don't really believe that the order is necessarily something that that one needs to choose one way or the other. Like I, I think, for example, I find myself, if I'm writing just some pure logic and pure functions, that's a case where I might want to do test-driven development. Whereas if in some other case, I've got this UI to stub out, maybe I just want to slap the UI together and watch it all pop up on the screen and then say, okay, now's the time to write some tests. So those are two areas where I might go in different directions as far as when to write those tests. I, fi- I find that the TDE thing starts to feel like it falls down a little bit as soon as you start dealing with interfaces. And I don't feel like people talk about that enough. Like sometimes you you can go write a test, but if like the view layer or whatever, you know, your front end, like there's like not a page yet. Like it's not, it's just going to be erroring. It's not going to be a failing thing. It's just going to throw like syntax errors. Like this thing doesn't even exist. Like it becomes this weird coupling thing where you're like, well, this, how, how far down the TDD path can you get? when technically some of the thing doesn't even remotely exist yet. So like, it's like expecting a file to not be there and your thing's probably going to yell at you a little bit. You can't get to a page in Cypress, let alone start clicking around on things. And then I, I agree with you on a, on a lot of those points there. One of the things that you know, I'm curious about is, you know, have you ever seen a scenario where teams might build up too many tests and feel like you'd be hesitant to remove ones because you feel like they've provided value, but, you know, front end... Related testing can not necessarily is known to be the fastest at times if you're spinning up browser things like that in, in your testing tool. So how do you kind of weigh that up with your teams or does that not actually manifest that often? <laughs> well, it, it's funny when you said that. My first reaction to too many tests is that's a very rare problem. Most of my clients, and this is partially the nature of being a consultant, I recognize that being a consultant is kind of like being a doctor, like people come to you when they have problems. So I have some of the biases that come from being a consultant. So most of the teams that I work with, I feel like are probably struggling a little bit more than average. And that's why they're reaching out to me. And also I want to clarify that often just has to do with merely you're talking about developers that might be senior developers in Java or C Sharp or Ruby or Python, but they're brand new to React. They come over and they make some junior mistakes because they're just new to the technology. So having somebody with the experience is helpful. That's probably the most common scenario for engagements uh, with me. Now, the other thing that's interesting is when you talk about too many tests, I have seen that problem manifest itself in Cypress and in Playwright. And the way that that looks is when people try to use those tools like they're unit testing tools and they're not. So the the problem that you run into is imagine I create this big app and then I start thinking about testing it using, say, Playwright. And I say, okay, I'm going to test the tab bar by itself. And now I'm going to test the search button by itself. And I'm going to test the footer by itself. And you take that idea and keep going with it. What you end up with is hundreds and hundreds of tests that all have to load up the app. And it's that first piece right there, load up the app. So it's it's a mindset shift. Like people have heard for years, well, if you write a unit test, then that unit test should be small and focused and test one thing and you want it to be really fast. That's great. But if you're using Playwright or Cypress to automate the browser, you're not 
probably writing a unit test. You're writing an integration test or an end-to-end -end test. And in that case, it's actually really helpful to test a workflow to say, for instance, I should be able to add a product to my cart, enter my information, enter my credit card information, put in my shipping, and then check out. And all of that could be one single test. The beauty of that is that means that I only had to load my application once instead of perhaps five or six times. So, I, I mean, I will say, when I work with a team that has too many tests and they're complaining about the problems that come from that, which it largely comes down to our CI build takes 45 minutes or a few hours, I've seen that. It's a wonderful problem. It's kind of like the problem of, oh, we have too many customers or you can solve this problem because it's a great sign that you've actually got a team that has invested wholeheartedly in writing tests. And the fix is quite simple. We go in and we start gluing tests together and thinking more in terms of pages and workflows rather than in terms of little slices of a page. Right, right. I'm, I'm curious as you're kind of helping them, you know, these teams kind of like distinguish that and you were using the example of like a checkout process, but let's say you have, you know, just to help conceptualize this a little bit for people. Let's say you have a, a page with a form and there's, you know, you submit it, everything looks great. That's like one happy path. But then there's maybe some scenarios where maybe there's some drop downs on that page. How do you help them think about dealing with like if there's a drop down that might change the like add new drop downs or like add some new feature like functionality? Like how do you help them think about, you know, like the click on that drop down? something else you have and like half the form changes now. And like, do you think about it from like that sort of perspective? Like, yeah, what's, what's your kind of take on that? I would say my take is take a dialogue, for example, that dialogue might have different things that display based on the settings there. And I would think through that in terms of scenarios. And I might have a test that runs through all those scenarios, even in a single test, again, for the primary purpose of saying, I don't want to have to load this dialogue three or four or five or six times in my test suite. I want to load it once and then interact with it. So when you hear this, you might get the concern to say, well, crud, like if I have a complex dialogue that has a bunch of different paths through it, like chain selects, for instance, if I select this, I get this other option. If I click this radio, then I get this other option. You can end up with a permutation there. You can end up with needing to test perhaps a dozen different workflows. I can still do that in a single test and feel comfortable by breaking that test down into functions. And that's what I really like about, say, Playwright, for instance. You can do the same thing in Cypress, though, that my test need not be monolithic. I can break it down into functions. And all my test becomes then is basically like a high level list of the things that I'm doing. And I could say test scenario one, test scenario two, test scenario three. And it's all within a single page that I loaded the dialogue once and then I put it to use. So that, again, that's the way I think about it because the thing that I've learned is the single biggest reason that these test suites tend to get slow over time is needless granularity. So now I do recognize you can go too far the other way and you obviously don't want to have one test that ends up testing your whole application that becomes untenable. So there's wisdom somewhere between in this. And, and again, that's where I tend to think of, I'm going to test a workflow and that way I test loading this page once and then try to hit as many permutations as I can. Do you often use the metaphor technical debt when you're interacting with your clients? I used to a lot. Now, now I guess I effectively convey that problem without saying those words. 
And it's actually, it's interesting that you ask it because I can't say that I'm trying to avoid that term. What tends to happen is companies come to me and they're looking for input on their process and on their code quality, on their applications, accessibility, on performance. They're looking for ways to lift all boats and they want to make sure that, for instance, if especially if they're paying a third party or if they've hired some junior devs and they, they've lost their senior, for instance, having some outside input is helpful. And in those cases, it's, yeah, it's useful to think, okay, what are the ways that we could we could improve any one of those things. And I, I mean, I recognize that tech debt has a nice use in that it resonates for people, uh, I think, pretty obviously. And a lot of people know what you mean by tech debt. The reason I think I avoid it is I just tend to be more specific. And, and so I'll say, for instance, here we used any within TypeScript, for instance. And because of that, we have no type safety on this response. We have no confidence that this response is actually returning the JSON that we claimed. So perhaps we should do some runtime validation there. Might use a tool like Zod to do that. I tend to do things like create a Word document that says, here are our opportunities for improvement. And yes, that Word document, you could basically say, this is our technical debt sheet, for instance, but I don't label it that way. I just label it as suggestions. I think that's part of it too, is like, it's really easy to say, oh gosh, we got a bunch of technical debt, boo-hoo. But the thing that's important is what you say after that is, this particular thing is technical debt, and I propose that we fix it by X. Like I, I, I was a manager years ago, back before I went independent. And one thing that I really liked was when people on my team came to me and said, I see this problem. Can we fix it by doing this? Like come, if you come to me both with a problem and a suggestion, that's really valuable. That makes you a more valuable piece of the team. Like don't just throw problems at me. I want to hear your input on how to fix it. So I guess that's part of why I, I, I don't find myself saying it that much. We'll be right back with our interview with Corey in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for making time to listen to the podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media. Maybe drop a link in your Slack chat. Or if you're stuck using Microsoft Teams, and the more that you do this, the less you'll hear me sing. Also, is there someone I should interview that you would recommend? Send me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. I apologize for the vocals, but let's get back to your interview with Corey House. One of the things I wanted to talk about, actually, was you recently tweeted something, and I thought this was interesting. And you said, you don't need an architect, but you do need at least one person who thinks architecturally. And they said, common titles, team lead, senior dev, architect, principal, title is important. I kind of wanted to get your, like, what do you mean by this architecturally? Yeah, if I were to summarize it, it's really a matter of thinking long-term and big picture. That tends to be something that a lot of teams 
lack. And the reason I say they lack that is you might have a situation where you have a senior dev, but that senior dev feels very pressured to make sure that this sprint is completed successfully. And it's really easy to get myopically focused on the next two weeks, much like a Fortune 500 CEO might be focused on just moving the stock price up a little bit through short-term manipulations rather than thinking about the long-term repercussions. There's, there's certain incentives that come from anyone in leadership. And the thing that I recognize is what's wonderful about having somebody that is titled as an architect is they tend to be outside of the critical path. So they therefore have the opportunity to say, I can invest a lot of time in this area because I think it's important and I don't have to worry about the fact that I've got a ticket that needs to be done by Friday when this sprint is over. That is a luxury. And that's part of what I'm getting at that you don't need a dedicated architect, but it often helps for that reason. And I have seen teams that do very well to just merely have a more long-term focus. It's also why, I mean, related to this here lately, I've been tweeting a lot about my concerns around Scrum and my concerns around how it tends to create a short-term focus. Uh, and I know that because I've experienced it. I, I experienced it much of my career in Scrum. And then when I pivot to teams that are doing more of a Kanban style, more of a lean style, limiting our whip, just more or less measuring flow, I found myself less worried about deadlines and thinking longer term. So the systems that we create have incentives around them and mindsets that come along for the ride. And it's not to say that Scrum, for instance, is objectively worse or always a problem. It's that I see that that structure does tend to put people into a certain short-term mindset, or at least it certainly does me, and I've seen it impact others. So it might seem weird that I bring that up too, but I just see those two conversations as a bit related. No, no, that's, and I appreciate you mentioning that as well, because I know it was something else I saw you write about recently, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. One of the thoughts I had in terms of the the role, or architecturally, I was wondering, like, I don't work in a large organization myself, and most of my clients are large organizations, and so I'm always wondering, like, well, in a small team, especially if there's been maybe a lot of, you know, I usually get pulled into projects when there's been a lot of turnover, and so there hasn't really been there that sometimes that long that has a lot of context to feel like they can make long-term decisions because they're like, well, they don't even feel like they wrap their head around it themselves. And they're like, that's why they're part of the reason they're, you know, they may be bringing my team in to come in and help augment that for a period of time while they, you know, they regroup and stuff on their, on their end. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'm like, sometimes it's like the luxury of having someone around to maybe build, do that. Do you have any advice for people that might be new on a team and they're like looking around and be like, what are some steps someone can take to start like maybe raising their hand and be like, I think I can do that for this team. I think one of the first things you do is lead by example. Like I love the idea of being the change that you would like to see. So for example, I've seen people complain that they feel like code reviews aren't important on the team. And that's where I say it's an opportunity to lead by example, to be in there doing real code reviews, spending time getting into the code, running the code, potentially pairing with others, even opening up a Zoom or Teams chat to try to do something higher fidelity. That idea of basically pretending that you're in the role that you would like to be in and operating that way is powerful. Uh, and it 
it's also wonderful too. Like it's also, as a side note, one of the reasons I really love speaking at conferences, like speaking at conferences changed the way that I thought about myself. Cause I, I suddenly was doing something that validated that I was capable of doing that thing. And I was hanging out with people that I looked up to and I thought, wow, I'm in a, I'm now in this circle that before I thought was impenetrable. And now I get to be a part of it. It like, it turns out it is not as difficult to get into as I had thought, for instance. So I really encourage uh, junior devs in particular to spend a lot of time trying a number of different things, but then start looking around and saying, okay, what's the area that really makes me come alive? Like if I had to do this particular slice of my job often, maybe that's the thing that I should go deep on and I could build a specialty there. So at some point, it's really useful to build a specialty, to, to make a name for yourself. And sometimes that might just be merely the thing that nobody else in the office wants to do. And it makes you really valuable because you're the one that says, all right, I'll take it on. It may not be my favorite thing, but I could make a name for myself. Uh, and I'll call out one other little thing. Uh, Cal Newport has a book, uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You. And one thing that he points out there is that telling young people to follow their passion is bad advice. And the reason that he says that is what tends to happen is you get really passionate about the thing that you get good at. I was not passionate about coding at first. It was just something that I was doing in college because, well, it was my major. I don't know. I'm getting a computer information systems degree. I got to do it. But as I got better and as I got feedback and as I got deeper into the industry, it became part of my identity, part of my sense of self identity. Like this was a group that I saw myself a part of. And now it is something that I just really enjoy. It feels as much like art as back when I used to write songs and play guitar. It's just all these tools that I'm putting together in novel ways. So it's fun. That's awesome. Um, I'll definitely include a link to that book in the show notes. You kind of preempted my one of my final questions I like to ask people, which is, is there a non-software book that you recommend to people? And I think that's probably a good one. <laughs> I have yet to um, yet to read myself, so I'm going to definitely look into that. Well, I know that you're a very busy person, Corey, and so you got you know you're just very in demand. So how can listeners best follow your thoughts on software engineering online? I am on Twitter and I am at Housecore on Twitter, H-O-U-S-E-C-O-R. I tweet every morning about software development and I've had a ritual about it. I tweet other times during the day, but at least once every morning. So I try to make it a keeper that way. I treat Twitter almost like other people might have treated a blog back in the days. They're shorter blog posts, but I... I'm tweeting as much meaningful stuff as I can there. Uh, and I'll say as a side note, Twitter is a wonderful place to validate ideas. That's what I use it for. I share opinions and insights. And what I find most valuable is people respond and often they respond and I go, oh, wow, there's even a, I shared a way to do it, but here's a better way. It's, it's Cunningham's law. You know, the best way to get the right answer on the internet is to share the wrong one. So I certainly don't do it intentionally, but sometimes you just find a better answer. Indeed. And, that, and that's how I found how I, how I stumbled upon you recently. So um, I know that we are, we're both part of the, of the software engineering world, but we kind of probably navigate in different circles. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for coming on Maintainable Talk Shop. We'll maybe have to have you come back on again because there's a bunch of topics I would love to get into you in particular related to consulting and how to be a good guest in another team's code base because I feel like it's a really important topic to dig into. Oh, right on. I could totally talk about that for a while too. <laughs> well, Robbie, thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Corey. Have a good rest of your afternoon. 